Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Crazy Money. This is Paul. This week, we've got a special essay reading deal where I'm going to read to you the most recent excerpts from my Substack. That is paulollinger.substack.com. I call it Money and the Meaning of Life. And why do I not call it Crazy Money? Because I think Money and the Meaning of Life is more descriptive. It's really what we're trying to go for here on Crazy Money. And this format's fun. I like writing, taking the opportunity to think through a thought about money, about life, about success, about family, and thinking it through for a thousand words, enough to get in depth, but not too long that that you feel bored before you're done with the essay. And sometimes I read them here when it's uh, vacation time and maybe you're going to spend a little time in the car or just have a little break from the format of linear one-on-one guest interview. Sometimes when I haven't tricked somebody into being a guest, we'll take the opportunity to, to read these essays, which people seem to enjoy. So We'll get going with that in just a second. I want to remind people and request that you come out and support my shows. I've got a weekend headlining gig at the Comedy Catch in Chattanooga, June 23rd and 24th. That's coming up fast. I'll be at Cosmos Live in Lawrenceville, Georgia on Sunday the 25th. I'll be headlining the Alley Stage in Marietta on July 7th. That's Siete de Julio. So come out and uh, run with the bulls and laugh your, your head off in Marietta, Georgia on July 7th. I will be also at the Charlotte Comedy Zone July 23rd and got some more country club gigs coming up. Folks, I've headlined or produced 20 shows at country clubs around the Atlanta area and one in Jacksonville and one coming up in Nashville over the last two years. That'll take it to 22, I guess. And they've just been an absolute home run. If you belong to a country club and you want to bring the comedic mountain to the Muhammad that is your membership, Hit me up at paul at crazymoneypodcast.com. I would love to help put a show together for you and your friends. Likewise, if you've got a comedy club in your town, reach out to them. Tell them you want me to come and tell some jokes near you. That's the business part of it. Let's jump into my first essay. This goes back all the way to back to March 7th, 2023, and it's called You Deserve It. Or maybe you don't, but that's not the point. Okay, there's this cool picture of Clint Eastwood pointing his shotgun at somebody across a bar. And here we go. In the climatic scene of the 1992 Western Unforgiven, William Money, played by Clint Eastwood, holds a rifle to the chest of a supine and wounded Little Bill Daggett, Gene Hackman, the corrupt sheriff who had tortured and killed Money's friend and partner. Little Bill looks up from the floor and pleads his case. I don't deserve this. To die like this. I was building a house. For almost two hours, the film's tension is built to the confrontation between these two legendary actors, and Money's simple reply proves every bit as powerful as the muzzle blast that follows. With a classic Eastwood growl, Money answers Little Bill, Deserves got nothing to do with it. I think about this scene all the time. You'd expect Money to point out that Little Bill, after the horrible acts he's committed, totally deserves what's coming to him. Instead, he delivers a profound insight into a fallacy of human logic. The disinterested universe cares little for the concept of deservingness or the plans we're making, no matter how much we believe it should. Before I write much more, I'll acknowledge that this is a massive, complex topic, and I won't pretend to solve the issues of fairness, meritocracy, or Nepo babies in an approximately 1,000-word essay. But I have one goal here, to ask that when you hear someone using any form of the infinitive, to deserve, you stop and consider what's behind the words. When I say I deserve this, it usually implies a degree of entitlement. 
as if either my work ethic or my charming personality merits the outcome I desire. If I say she doesn't deserve that in reference to something I want but do not have, my words invariably reflect underlying resentment, envy, or pettiness. The human tendency to think in these terms goes way back. The Gospels grapple with deservingness in the parable of the prodigal son and of the vineyard workers. In both cases, individuals who didn't do the work or play by the rules still earn a full reward, which understandably pisses off those who put in the time. It's especially hard for us to deal with this kind of unfairness in zero-sum situations like college admissions. Last spring, my friend's daughter got into a top university, let's call it Princeton, because the soccer coach needed a goalkeeper. My friend's child had a solid academic record, but more relevantly, she happened to play the right position in the right sport at the right time. Did she deserve to beat out 22 other very qualified applicants for that spot? I don't know. Does Pete Davidson deserve to have sex with Emily Rodakowski? I had to look it up how to pronounce that, by the way. It's just how life works. Opportunities don't always accrue based on grades, test scores, or inherent virtue. And to be clear here, I'm not writing off persistent societal issues that prevent people from obtaining opportunities due to their race, gender, etc. I'm talking about the fact that luck, randomness, or life circumstances intervene in ways that appear contrary to the way the world, from our limited, self-centered human perspective, ought to work. It's the same with money. Wealth often finds people who didn't, quote, earn it via inheritance, alimony, or dumb luck. Do they deserve it? Wrong question. The right question is, so what? They have it, and they'll probably keep it. If that bothers me, well, that's my problem. In this kind of situation, it's helpful to remind myself that I already have so much that I personally didn't earn. Did I deserve to be born to two parents who loved, protected, and educated me in the wealthiest country in history during a time of peace and stability? Clearly, I did nothing to justify such a solid foundation, but it eventually paid off financially. Of course, I could have had those same privileges and decided to slack off. My calculus homework didn't do itself, after all. But even though my last name isn't Carnegie or Kardashian, I still won the genetic lottery. Also, we should remember that the concept of deservingness works the other way around. This year, over 600,000 Americans will die from cancer. They were busy living their lives, raising children, building houses like Little Bill, when the universe stepped in and dealt them cards they did not deserve. Sure, you can increase the odds of staying healthy by eating right and exercising, and you can't win at Powerball if you don't play. But these outcomes are mostly the products of the universe's incomprehensible and different math. Deserves got nothing to do with it. In addition to keeping money's words in mind, it might be helpful to ponder the literal definition of deserve, that is, to be worthy of a thing. If you have something others want, here are some ways you can be worthy of it. 1. Be grateful. First and last, practice gratitude for your good fortune. As hard as, quote, self-made people may have worked and as much as they may have delayed gratification, all of us have had help or gotten lucky along the way. 2. Be prudent. A good steward takes care of her assets. She's not reckless with them and honors them by not exposing them to unnecessary risk. As Warren Buffett says, it's insane to risk what you have and need for something you don't need. Three, be generous. If nobody deserves anything, you can honor your bounty by sharing it, if only because your generosity serves you as well as others. In their book, Happy Money, researchers Mike Norton and Liz Dunn report that giving to charity had the same happiness-boosting effect as a doubling of income. Lastly, be self-aware. You've gotten so many opportunities just because. You've avoided calamity and disease mostly out of good luck. Never forget that because it's temporary. Beware of thinking in the deserve binary. It's not helpful and it cuts both ways. One of these days while you're out there living your life, 
the ball of good fortune will bounce your way, or an oncoming truck will swerve into your lane. You don't deserve either, but even if you did, it wouldn't change the outcome. You know, a lot of the reason I write and a lot of the reason I do the podcast about these topics is as a reminder to myself to stay grateful, to stay aware, to stay self-aware, to stay mindful of the world we live in and to be cognizant of the fleeting nature of life. And I think in this one, and you deserve it, I think what I'm going for is a reminder that you can work hard and you can do all the right things. You can be on the right side of morality in the universe and things still might not go your way and vice versa. I always remember that book when bad things happen to good people. And I'm like, I'd rather write a book when good things happen to bad people. Fuck those guys, you know? But it doesn't matter. None of us deserve the circumstances we were born into. It's really all about what we do with them. And even if we do the right things, it doesn't mean we're going to get what we want or what we think we want. And so that's what I was trying to tell myself. I remember going to church with my grandmother as a kid and hearing the gospel about the vineyard workers. She didn't like that one bit. <laughs> she didn't like the fact that the people that showed up at three in the afternoon got paid the same as a full day's wage as the people that showed up at six in the morning. And I, I tend to agree with her, but I'm not sure it matters. And I think sometimes you just got to let it go. Most of the time you got to let it go. All right, let's move on to the next one, which I will read. And it's called Money, Pain, and New Cars. Money, Pain, and New Cars, the Diminishing Analgesic Effects of Wealth. When I was 12 years old, my dad took me to the dentist to get my first cavity filled. By the way, he said as we walked into the office, don't get the Novocaine, it's $20. My father was a very good man, the most decent, humble person I've ever known. But he was so frugal and required so little material fulfillment in his own life that maybe he had trouble understanding other people's desire for teeny tiny luxuries like, oh, I don't know, anesthesia? Ten minutes later, as Dr. Stallings' drill tore into my virgin molar and the acrid stench of pulverized tooth filled the air, I writhed in agony and dug my fingernails into the arm of the dentist's chair. Then and there, I made myself a promise, someday I'm going to make some goddamn money. Because in certain cases, money literally relieves pain. I was thinking about this the other day while driving my new car. After 10 years, I traded in my Tesla for a new Mercedes SUV. It is a beautiful piece of German engineering by way of Alabama, and I still get excited whenever I see it. However, as tasty as my new ride is, it's nowhere close to the most thrilling automobile purchase I have ever made. That honor belongs to the 1994 Saturn SL2. In 1994, I was three years out of college and the real world was kicking my ass. My employer paid me a whopping $25,000 salary, but thanks mostly to repair bills on the 12-year-old Honda Accord I drove, I had already incurred $4,000 in credit card debt, a seemingly insurmountable balance. Hondas are famous for being reliable, but mine was possessed by the devil. Every morning when I turned the key, it was a game of will she or won't she start. While I idled at stoplights, I heard the nausea-inducing pings, clunks, and crunches that foreshadowed another $800 invoice from Vinnie the Mechanic and a maxed-out visa. Dread was my co-pilot. A car is often an outward sign of how its owner's life is going. 
With a cracked windshield, a temperamental transmission, and an AC that blew only dirt and dead spiders, my vehicle's accurate signals did not enhance my dating life, especially in the sticky heat of Memphis, Tennessee. No young woman riding shotgun and sweating through her Counting Crows t-shirt is thinking, I just have to make babies with this winner. But good news lurked on the horizon. By hitting a few ambitious goals at work, I earned myself a promotion and a $7,500 raise, that's 30%, pal, which allowed me to finance a new car. Thus did I acquire a brand new Saturn SL2 on a Sunday afternoon from a salesman with a John Stossel mustache. The transaction drastically improved my dating life, delivering transportational serenity in a way none of my subsequent luxury car purchases would, regardless of the massive disparity in amenities. Consider this, my new SUV is loaded with a 362-horsepower engine, leather interior, 20-inch spoke wheels, a symphony-quality sound system, and seats that blow chilled air up my crack. My Saturn, on the other hand, was a tin can with bicycle tires, a moped engine, and an AM-FM cassette player. Yet as unsexy as Salty the Saturn was, I loved her. Why? Easy. She started when asked, ran without complaint, and sipped gas with teetotaling restraint. But most of all, Salty removed chaos from my life. Instead of the pain of repair bills, I had a predictable and very reasonable monthly car payment. Instead of jungle-caliber humidity, I had air conditioning. Instead of a cringe-inducing junker, I had a shot with the ladies. Before you say money won't make you happy, qualify it with the phrase, beyond a certain point. A recent bank rate survey found that 56% of Americans can't cover a $1,000 emergency expense with savings. That means more than half of us are constantly navigating an endless series of financial crises. When their car breaks down, they get a speeding ticket or have a fender bender, they are screwed. If you told these folks that money, say $5,000, wouldn't improve their life, they would laugh in your clueless face. It might not solve all their problems, but it would get them through the month, which is what most people are just trying to do. When you live on the cusp of financial chaos, every step away from the economic abyss relieves pain the fear of uncertainty, the lack of self-determination, and the doubt in oneself. Of course, this pain is psychic as opposed to physical, but it is every bit as real as having one's bicuspid torn to shreds by a spinning metal spike. At lower economic levels, small increments of money deliver narcotic bliss and push us away from threats to our subsistence. But as we save money and build wealth, additional funds contribute less and less to our overall well-being. Economists call this decreasing marginal utility, and to me, there's no better example than buying a new car. Going from a beater like my old Honda to a reliable new Saturn is a booster rocket for your self-esteem. But when you trade in a used Tesla for a new Mercedes, you're not extinguishing pain. You're just drizzling a little extra chocolate sauce on the ice cream sundae that is your life. The danger here is that, because it doesn't provide the same exhilaration as past purchases, We forget how amazing it is to not have imminent catastrophe riding in the back seat. You can't appreciate this lack of chaos in your life if you don't notice it. So the next time your car starts, think, this is good. When you drive past the mechanic who used to have you over a barrel, say out loud, not anymore, Vinny. And if you ever feel a comfy breeze blowing up your skirt or trousers, remind yourself just how far up Maslow's hierarchy of automotive needs you're living. There's nothing better than self-determination, which is what my Saturn represented to me. I was solving real-world problems and figuring out life as an adult. It was Novocaine for my soul, and I will never forget it. I don't think I will ever get over the pain of being 24 and being broke that I reflect on in this essay. 
there's kind of an equal footing in college because you all live in the same dorms, more or less, at least in my college. You know, some people had cars, some people didn't. You didn't really need a car that much. You went to the same parties, basically. Everybody's kind of equal in college. Then you get out of college, and in a very short period of time, financial resources, differences become palpable. And some guys go back and work for their dads, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, he's rich. (laughs) He's going to be, I mean, I knew he was rich, but now he's working for his dad, and I've got five roommates and sleep on a futon. Or, you know, I'm living on my own, and I'm just sucking wind. I remember one time, I've told this story before on the podcast, but there were points in my career where I would pay my bills and have $14 left until my next paycheck. In retrospect, I should have gone and gotten a second job. I should have waited tables at night and paid off my credit cards and put some money in the bank. But I was, uh, I had too much pride. I thought if I was waiting tables, well, then I'm not a professional and people wouldn't respect me. There was a time when I took a girl to brunch, the granddaughter of a very wealthy family took her to brunch and I had to use my corporate credit card from the college where I was working at the time in the fundraising department, in the, in the development department, I had to pay for her omelet with my, with my Rhodes college credit card. And I was just mortified. I was mortified, probably more mortifying with the Argyle socks I was wearing with my, my new skin bucks or whatever they called those shoes and my Bermuda shorts, that was probably more mortifying. She was probably more embarrassed by that than she was by the fact she was with some broke-ass dude. But I just think these things, these things, this financial pain never leaves us. And that's why I think it's important to stay mindful of how good things are when they get good and things have gotten very good. And I try to stay mindful of it. All right, we're going to move on. Am I being too vulnerable today? I feel like I'm being vulnerable. <laughs> All right, let's go on. We're going to finish with this episode staying hungry when your life is full here we go middle-aged people let's do it i weighed in this morning at 224.5 pounds it's the heaviest i've been since i lost the sympathy weight after our first child was born last time my heft resulted from a back injury lots of business travel and the cupcakes my pregnant wife would bring to the office I was pudgy, like Ned Beatty in Deliverance, soft, and we all know what happened to him. I'm much stronger now, but the scale reveals the inconvenient truth that my biceps, triceps, and glutes are Wagyu caliber marbled. It's all diet, and I know it. I work out with a trainer on Mondays and Thursdays, and I walk at least 15 miles per week. But what, when, and how I eat breaks all the rules. Oddly, it's me living my dream that causes this fitness challenge. If you work a 9-to-5 job, you can mostly digest your dinner before you nestle down but my schedule is staggered five hours to the right. To even stay awake for comedy shows past 10 p.m., I drink a cup of coffee at 3 in the afternoon. After the show, I'm totally wired and nowhere near ready for bed. When I get home, there's a pan of brownies on the counter, leftover pot pie in the fridge, and an open bottle of red wine begging for me to finish off. Who am I to resist? So I jam 1,200 calories down my gullet at 11.30 p.m., then watch Golf Central and fall asleep on the couch. An hour later, I'll wake up, brush my teeth, get in bed, and set the alarm for 6.15 a.m. so I can wake the kids up, at which point I'll slam three cups of coffee to get myself going again. Coffee up, Cabernet down. I'm like preppy Elvis, and it's starting to show. This weight gain is actually an indication of how lucky I am. I'm doing exactly what I want in life, if maybe not quite at the level I'd like to be doing it. 
I make audiences laugh, then return to a beautiful home where my wife is in bed sleeping with the dog and my two healthy children are snuggled in upstairs. I can't imagine not doing both comedy and parenting at full speed. But fuck, man. I think my body is a metaphor for life in the primo zip codes. Last year, I said no to a half dozen golfer ski trips. Vail, Bandon Dunes, Ireland, etc. It's not that I don't want to go. I love to golf and I love to ski. But if that's all you do, that's what you'll be good at. As worthy and healthy as these pursuits might be, they're not what I feel called to work on. <laughs> There's a very funny picture, an AI-generated picture of, of a fat guy eating on a couch that's pretty funny. It's AI. I didn't do it. In a world of opulent distractions, I'm trying to stay hungry. Why? Ernest Becker, author of The Denial of Death, might suggest that I'm striving for immortality. The pursuit to play bigger rooms or get millions of people to listen to my podcast, he would argue, is an attempt to prove not only that I existed, but that I mattered. This is certainly true on some level and part of the, quote, dignified madness that makes us uniquely human. Within a generation or two, 99.9% .9 of us will exist only as diluted DNA in the double helices of our grandchildren, if that. We know this, if only subconsciously, and we fight it every day. But I honestly think it's something else also, not just a futile pursuit of immortality, but the genuine embrace of mortality. The opportunity to be who we want to be is right here, right now, and there's no guarantee it will be here tomorrow. Kind of like the leftovers in the fridge. So whether there are 30 or 3,000 people in the audience, the function is the same. My life will not mean any more or less if I get famous or if my podcast finally gets the recognition it so richly deserves. Why not stop and smell the flowers? This is smelling the flowers. The whole reason I chose this path was to avoid the deathbed remorse of wondering what if I had given the creative life a full swing or regretting that I had not been a better dad or husband. The pursuit matters. My kids will never be this age again, and as porky as I am right now, hopefully temporarily, I will never be this young or healthy again. So I'm gathering rosebuds, I'm busy being born, and all that shit. Like frost in the snowy woods, I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep. But before I go to bed, I think I'll finish the rest of that pot pie. Carpe diem. I struggle with this, you know? I struggle with wondering, am I doing enough? Am I doing too much? What if I just tried to enjoy the day? And I did that for a while. I, I kind of just goofed off and didn't have a lot of goals. I'm definitely happier working towards something. But I think the what we always have to try to keep in mind is that that something is illusory, that, that it's always just out of our reach, that it is always, that that horizon is always moving. There's funny research. It's funny because it's true and it demonstrates a, a human foible. Liz Dunn and Mike uh, Norton, who I referenced in the last article, did in that same book. And they found that almost everyone, including multimillionaires, believes that they'd be a full 10 out of 10 happy if they had twice as much as they have. And the funny thing about that is that twice isn't an absolute number. It's a relative number. And so when we're constantly thinking happiness is just over the horizon, we're missing the opportunity to enjoy the day. And that's just some of the thoughts that I had this week. I hope you guys have a wonderful summer. I've got some pretty incredible guests lined up in the queue. We're going to do an episode on rich divorce. Not that rich divorce is any more painful or less painful than regular divorce, but I think it's interesting and there's some interesting people working in this field that provide services that I never imagined would exist. So we're going to talk to some of them. 
We're going to talk to some pretty great authors, some pretty great academics, lots of good shit out there in the next few months for Crazy Money, and I look forward to sharing it with you very soon. In the meantime, Mike Carano, make me sound smart.